From the San Luis Valley in southern Colorado, this is Solace Radio. In 2007, Solace Radio began broadcasting the word of Adonai, God, to the world through times of trouble and times of blessing. To many, we became their rock and which they could build their faith in Jesus or Yeshua, plus learn the lessons and wisdoms held in the Bible or the Torah, learning life's lessons for peace, joy, all in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and the New Testament, the Brit Hadashah. To many, we are the rock on which you stand, building your faith in Jesus and Yeshua. Salus Radio has never charged our listeners or teacher for listening or broadcasting the Word of God. All of our programming and airtime are given free of charge. No sign-up fees, no memberships, no fees at all. But we do need your help today to keep reaching the world. Our fall-winter fun drive has begun in earnest. Solace Radio's goal is $3,000. For 15 years, Solace Radio has broadcast the Word of God to the world never thinking of ourselves, and never taking a salary, just putting it all in the hands of God. Your donations and support will allow us to keep broadcasting for another year. Without your support, we may face difficult decisions in the future. Salus Radio is not a 501c3. We believe for that reason, all support and donations truly come from the heart. Your support can be in any amount, of the 195 countries in the world, Solace Radio has reached 135 of them. To donate, you can simply go to www.solaceradio.org forward slash giving. May God Adonai move your heart to support Solace Radio today so we may continue the ministry to the world. Once again, visit www.solaceradio.org forward slash giving. Your support is greatly appreciated. Shalom and thank you. You know, actually, every Brad and I do travel a lot together. It never fails that somebody's going to call him Bill and going to call me Brad. And uh, sometimes I just like to go, you know, kind of just go with the flow, you know, so I'll get up and I'll just start doing things like this. And, uh, you know, like, And no one's the wiser, you know. <laughs> All right. Anyway. All right. How many of you, this is your first time to Sukkot? Okay. Here, first of all, raise your hand. Okay. Anywhere, raise your hand. All right. How many of you have never heard me teach? <laughs> all right. Um Anyway, a lot of people ask me, you know, you know, Bill, how did you get into all this? You know, how did you end up, you know, getting into the whole messianic thing? And so if it's okay, I'm going to just take a couple of minutes to kind of tell you how I got into this. Is that all right? I'm going to do it anyway, but I thought I'd ask your permission. All right. Of course, I was raised, you know, Pentecostal, tongue talking, you know, oil slapping on the head, you know, people laying like around like cordwood, you know, and. Ladies shaking the bobby pins out of their hair, those kinds of things. That's how I was raised. Now I'm not, I'm not putting that down. I'm not castigating that. That's just simply how I was raised. 
And that's some of my first memories, is that that kind of an environment. And frankly, had it not been for my mother taking me to church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, and every Wednesday night, and to every VBS, and to every revival, chances are I wouldn't be here with you today. So I don't look down upon that. I thank God for that, frankly. All right? In the course of time, my wife and I ended up in Florida. We were raised in Georgia, South Georgia. And uh, we ended up in Central Florida. And uh, we were ended up as being being youth pastors at a fairly large church down there just outside of Orlando. One day, there was this gentleman who uh, came to our church. He was representing the International Christian Embassy of Jerusalem. His name was Johan Lukov. And uh, he came into our church and, and was talking about what the ICEJ was doing uh, in, in their efforts to bring Jewish people out of the Soviet Union, out of these different places, into the land of Israel. And now that particular day he was there, I was not having a particularly good day, spiritually speaking. Anyhow, I sat through this man's lecture and I, I thought, you know, Father, I want to do something that's that's practical, that really makes a difference. Because I'm pretty much, by this time, I'm already pretty much over just going through the routine. You know, showing up on Sunday morning, showing up on Sunday night, and then we do it all over again next week. I'm already over it by this time. So I'm, I said, you know, I want to do something and be part of something that's going to make a difference. Like, you know, something like this guy's doing here. And I know that we've all had these experiences where the Father, He speaks to us, and we know that we know that we know that He has spoken to us. And that, that night was one of those, uh, those nights for me. After the services had concluded, I'm standing up on the stage because I was part of the music team and I was just singing background vocals and, uh, they were taking up an offering for this man's, uh, the ICEJ and their efforts to bring Jewish people out of, out of the Soviet Union. And, um, we were just kind of singing along as they're taking up this collection. And so as I'm singing, this man is standing across the stage staring at me. And it was obvious that he was staring at me, and I'm, and I'm thinking, what's going on? And something just told me, he's going to come and speak to you, Bill, after this is all over. And I thought it was one of those times where, you know, you know, I think God's speaking to me, but maybe I'm talking to myself, and I'm not really sure here what's going on. I know that none of you have ever done anything like that before. <laughs> all right? Anyway, after the thing's over with, I wait around on stage, just, you know, kind of milling around to see if this guy's going to come talk to me. And sure enough, he goes right off the stage, heads out the door. So I thought, well, Bill, you were talking to yourself again. So anyway, I'm coming down off the stage, and as I'm heading down the aisle, I see him get to the front door. He puts his hand on the little bar to open the door, and he stops. He wheels around, and he comes walking right back straight to me. And he walks up to me, and he says, Bill, or actually he was from South Africa, so it was more like bull. <laughs> Which if he only knew what kind of a person I am, he, he, he didn't know he nailed it, actually. But he says, Bull, he says, I want you to come to the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. I didn't even know what the Feast of Tabernacles was. But I said, yeah, I'll go. And he says, I really feel like you're supposed to be there. And this was in 1990. And so and I won't go through all the details of of, uh, of how I got there. But actually, that's where I met Jonathan Sattel for the first time. All right. But at any rate, I ended up going to the feast. And one night... We're in the Binyane Haumah, the convention center there in Jerusalem, and there are thousands of people there from all over the world during Sukkot. I didn't know what Sukkot was. I didn't know what Shabbat was. I didn't know what Hebrew. I didn't know nothing. All I knew was here I am, a South Georgia boy, Pentecostal South Georgia boy in Jerusalem. All right. 
That's right. All right. So one night, one night, this this young lady by the name of Elisheba Shomron. Has anybody, has anyone ever heard that name before? If you haven't heard her name, you've heard her songs. In fact, I think last night they sang one of them called Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Well, anyway, Elisheba Shomron went to the microphone with the guitar and she began to sing a song called La Mansion for the sake of Zion. And you can go and you can read the words of this song in Isaiah 62. That's what it's based on. La Mansion. Now, she's singing this song. There are thousands of people here. She's singing this song in Hebrew. I don't know Hebrew. I'm up on the platform with these other people who are singing. And as she's singing this song in Hebrew, singing words, I have no idea what they mean. I have a meltdown. I mean, right there. I just broke down. I mean, I wasn't just, it wasn't just sniffling, you know, it wasn't. No, no, it was. You know, snots running out my nose. <laughs> it wasn't one of those times you want somebody to take a picture, you know. And people are like, you know, what's wrong with you? I don't know. <laughs> Ladies are pulling out, you know, there's handkerchiefs, there's toilet paper coming from everywhere. Guys are like, mm-hmm. <laughs> And I'm just, I'm a puddle. And later on, you know, that night when I'm, you know, collected myself here and got my head together, you know, it dawned on me what had happened. It was something about that song she was singing. Something about that song she was singing in a language I did not understand. So I went to Isaiah 62 to read what Isaiah 62 had to say. And to paraphrase Isaiah, it says, I am not going to keep silent until you do what you promised you would do with Jerusalem. And with Zion, I'm not going to hold my peace. In short, Isaiah 62 is about the restoration of all things. And so when I got on the flight to return home, I had two things on my mind. Number one, I'm going to learn about the feast days because my mama didn't tell me about Sukkot. My mama didn't tell me about Shabbat. And I realized when I was there in Jerusalem that there was something to this, something that I didn't know anything about. And I was right out the second thing I had on my mind is I'm going to learn this language called Hebrew because there's something in that language that just really got me and it reduced me to a puddle of mush. Now, perhaps some of you can identify with that when you hear these songs in Hebrew and maybe you don't know Hebrew, but when you hear that language, is can anybody identify with what I'm saying here? Okay, so I made up my mind when I got home, I'm going to learn this language. If nothing else, I want to learn that song. And so when I got home, I was living in Deland, Florida. I told my wife, one of the first things I told her is I said, we're going to keep the feast days. She said, what are that? <laughs> and I said, well, these these feasts in the Bible and, and the first one that's coming up is Passover. And we're going to do it. How are we going to do that? I have no idea. So I'm going to call the only person in town that might be able to help me, the local rabbi. So I call up the local rabbi there. And his name was Jacob Levinson. And I call him up and he's an elderly man. This was what, 17 years ago. And he's elderly at that time and, and like 80 something then. But I call him up and I introduce myself. My name is Bill Cloud. I'm over here at this church, blah, blah, blah. Just returned from Israel, blah, blah, blah. I want to do this. I want to learn this song in Hebrew. I want to learn about the feast days. And he says, what's your name again? I told him, he says, you're not a Jew. 
I said, no, I'm not a Jew. Not that I know of. He says, you're a Christian. I said, yeah. And you want to want to you want to do what? And I told him, he says, meet me at my house tonight, six o'clock. So I get off work, tell my wife where I'm going, go over to this man's house. And uh, he opens the door, invites me in and uh, very friendly, you know, and his wife is, is standing over uh, back from the door over toward the kitchen. And she's a little little short lady, little short Jewish lady, about like that. She was probably about that wide as well, you know, and sweet as she could be later, you know. But when I first come in the room, she's standing over there off to the side and is going, so you're the Christian. <laughs> anyway, Jack and I sit down and I, I had these words, you know, in Hebrew transliterated into English phonetically, you know, so I could so I could read them. And so he looked at it and he helped me pronounce the words. And so once I had kind of practiced the words, I sang the song for him. And uh, how many, if anyone, has anyone ever heard Leban Silon? Leban Silon, lo 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 ulman Yerushalayim. Lo eshko, lo lo echeshe, ad yetzeka noga tzidka, lo lo echeshe, veyoshuata kelapid yiva, lo lo for the sake of Zion, I will not keep silent. And for the sake of Jerusalem, I will not hold my peace. Until her righteousness shines forth as a torch, I will not keep silent. And you can read Isaiah 62. But after I sang the song, Eva, Jack's wife, who had been standing over there observing all this from the kitchen. She come walking over to me. Actually, she kind of kind of walked over to me like this. She's very short, and so she gets over to me, and she motions to me, you know, bend over here. So I lean over, and she grabs me right here. <laughs> and she's doing this. She says, oh, darling, that was such a beautiful song. <laughs> Will you please t- come to the temple and sing it for us. So, so I, I went to, my family and I went to the temple. Uh, Nathan, one of my older boys, who's here, he was, well, he was just a little fella. He was, you know, our lap baby still. But, uh, we went over to the temple and Jack went on to the Bema and he says, now we have a special treat tonight. Bill Cloud, who's not a Jew. <laughs> Bill Cloud, who's not a Jew, but who is a Christian, is going to come to the Bema and sing to us tonight from Isaiah 62. Please keep in mind, Bill is not a Jew. (laughs) So. So I went to the Bema and I sang Le Mansion. And after I got through singing, there were all these little Jewish ladies... (laughs) 
So from there, developed a relationship with uh, specifically Jack and his wife Eva, and but that that congregation, that very small congregation called Temple Israel, there in the land, Florida. For a number of years, my wife and I and our family, we would go over there um, pretty frequently, and they would ask me to sing and you know be part of Kol Nidre, and and Jack would come over to where we were at church, and we would have because we started having weird things happen at our church after this. Because I got this hunger to learn more about the language, and Jack was teaching me at least his perspective of the Moedim and you know his traditions as, as far as the feast days. And and I had lots of questions, and I would ask him, "So why do you do this?" And he's like, "I don't know. We just always did it." But he would go find out why they do this, and he would come back. And so we we had a great relationship. And so the bottom line is this: I got all excited, and I knew why. The father had caused that man to stop at that door, turn around, come back, and invite me to Sukkot. Because it was Sukkot, ladies and gentlemen, that changed my life. And so I understood why. And I was all excited about what the father was showing me. And so, you know, I ran back to the church where I was on staff at. And I said, let me tell you. What the Father is showing me. Let me tell you what God is showing me here. We need to do this. We need to learn Hebrew. We need to have Arab Shabbat services. We need to have a Passover Seder. We need to start keeping the feast. And yeah, well, let's light the lights at Hanukkah. And did you think they got really excited along with me? Oh, they got really excited. And I moved to Tennessee. So. So that's kind of how I got ended up here. Uh, so anyway, I just thought some of you might be interested to know. Now, I, like I said, I, I share that because a lot of times people ask me things like, you know, Bill, you're here with Monty, but I just saw you on television the other day with this other guy, you know. So how is that? Well, ladies and gentlemen, here's the deal. Because you and I, every one of us in here, were once in that position where we didn't know what we know today. Is that, isn't that right? And so my opinion is, if we're to be fishers of men, let's go to where the fish are. Because if you only fish one hole, sooner or later, you're going to run out of fish. All right. And so I'm not going to tell you that, you know, these people have caught on and they know they, they got it. But I have seen evidence of late where that little bulb is flickering. OK, more importantly, the peoples that they have access to are are starting to catch it. They're hearing things that some of the, you know, the big wigs don't hear. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is is our mission, is to reach the fish, is to reach the people with this message. If we believe we have the truth, and we do, then we need to take it to where the people are. Do you agree? All right. Now, with that in mind, I want to uh, kind of uh, dive into our, our subject here today. It's, uh, well, what are they calling it in the brochure? Concealed, revealed? Okay. All right. This is this is something I've been teaching quite a bit on, and, and some of you are probably going to hear things you've heard before, heard me speak on before, but some of you, perhaps this is going to be a little different. But uh, what I want to do is I want to first of all go to Romans chapter 8 and read from a letter written by the man who feels that the Father has compelled him to go among the nations, to go among the Gentiles, to go out there where the fish are. And I want to ask you a couple of silly questions, all right? Don't give me any silly answers, but I'm going to ask you some silly questions. All right. Who wrote this letter to the Romans? Okay. 
Where's he staying? Right over here somewhere? Okay. I want to point out that Paul, Shaul, is not, is not a New Testament scholar. Everybody got that? He is not a New Testament scholar. And so when he teaches, when he writes, when he exhorts, he's not going to make things up on the fly. He's not going to pull things out of thin air. But he is always going to resort to the Scriptures. He is always going to draw from the Word of God, the Torah, the prophets. Because this is a man, remember, that trained at the feet of Gamaliel, who to this day is considered an esteemed sage in Judaism. And so this Paul shall learn from the best, as it were, that Judaism had to offer. And so again, when he when he writes things, he's not going to again make things up. He's going to draw from the Scriptures. So in Romans chapter 8, let's begin to read at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law or the Torah of God, nor indeed can be. So very simply, the the carnal mind, the flesh, to walk after the flesh, is to walk away from Torah. Plain and simple. is to walk away from God's commandments. And so the opposite of that must be true as well. If we're not going to walk according to the flesh, as he's going to go into here, to walk, but to walk according to the Spirit, what does that mean? If walking according to the flesh is to walk away from God's commandments, then walking by the Spirit means what? Walking toward and by God's commandments. And walking in the footsteps that He has ordered for us, as is laid out in the Torah. He goes on, So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Messiah, he is not his. And if Messiah is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Yeshua from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Messiah from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit, these are sons of God. So again, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Not to walk away from God's Torah, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, because it will not subject itself to the Torah of God, to the law of God. And so to be led by the Spirit is to walk according to His commandments, to walk back toward Him according to this path that he has ordained for us in the Scriptures. And those, he says, Shaul writes, those who are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Messiah, if we indeed suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, 
But we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. And I'll stop there. Now, there's a lot of things in this these passages that we just read, and they're, they're, there's no way to exhaust all that can be gleaned from this. But there's a few points that I want to hit on. First of all, Paul is going through and, 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 and demonstrating the dichotomy between those who walk according to the flesh, that is, away from God's Torah, and those who walk according to the Spirit, by God's Torah, according to His commandments. He goes on and says that those who walk according to the Spirit, these are the sons of God. And he says that the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are sons of God. Now, who do you think he's talking about there? Us is Ewans, y'all, and you guys. All right. Everybody agree with that? The Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. Now, he goes on to say that, uh, well, to paraphrase, we're hoping we were saved for a particular reason. We were saved in this hope. And what is that hope? That one day we're going to see these bodies redeemed as well. Right? I mean, are you hoping for that? So if you're hoping for that, then you understand that it not, has not yet happened. Right? Because you don't hope for something that's already a reality. But if you hope for something, it has to be because you believe that it will truly come to pass. It will come to fruition. You know it is true. And so you hope for it. Now, let me put it to you this way. How many of you are born again? Raise your hand. Three of you. Very good. All right. How many of you are born again? All right. Now, how many of you sin? Raise your hand. Why? Because of that stuff right there. Flesh. That right there. Now, I know that there are some pious among us who don't sin. But Bill, <laughs> yeah. But Bill has days that he doesn't want to do what the Torah says. I know that this won't apply to anybody sitting here in this tent. But there's some days that Bill just wants just to act like Bill. All right. There's some days that Bill doesn't want to be nice. There's some days that Bill would love to eat a plate full of Gulf shrimp. I'm just being honest. I don't do it, but there's some days I'd really like to. Come on, help me out, Jim. These folks are looking at me like I got three heads here. All right? Because we have this flesh. And as long as we're walking around this flesh, even though we have been born again of an incorruptible seed, we're still walking around in this flesh, which means we need direction. We need instructions. We need somebody to set the parameters for us. Right? Because none of us were born immaculate. I'm waiting for some of them to get the revelation. We were all born as sons of Adam. We were all conceived in iniquity. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short. And yes, even those of us who have been born again of this incorruptible sea, we have to get up every day and we have to discipline ourselves to crucify this flesh because this flesh does not want to walk according to this Torah. Right? 
And so we have to be led not by this flesh. We have to be led by the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God is always going to direct us back to God's instructions, to God's Torah. Now, you know, in my background, growing up Pentecostal, being led by the Spirit meant, well, it meant a lot of things. It meant a lot of things. But never can I ever remember in my, you know, in my background, did it ever mean to walk according to God's Torah? It meant everything else. Now, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of like men, you know how we are when we, when we're on a trip, we're going to go on a trip. We get everybody packed up, get everybody in the car and we take off wherever we're going, cross country, whatever. You know, the first 80, 90% of the trip, not a problem because we can point at the car in the right direction and we can, we can make hay. You know, we got deadlines too, don't we guys? All right, bathroom break, got exactly 10 minutes. I want you in the car. We're, you know, let's go. We got a deadline to keep here. But when we get closer to that destination, you know, when we're, we're, we're kind of homing in on the, the, that place that we need to be. There have been times, gentlemen, that we're riding around looking for that place. I know it's around here somewhere. I can feel it. I'm going to turn down this street. No, it's not here, but it's around here somewhere. We're going to find it. And what's your wife doing? She's over there. Will you just pull over, please, and find somebody and ask directions? <laughs> Woman, I don't need nobody to tell me where to go. I can find it. Am I right, ladies? Okay. Yeah, I know. I'm gonna. Be, you ladies are gonna have to escort me to my my trailer after this dinner. But, you know, guys, we just have this sense that we can find it. We can just feel it in our gut. I know it's here. And I'm not going to rest until I find it all by myself. <laughs> Several years ago, Beth and, and the two older kids, we went to Washington, D.C. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a big history buff. And, and so we're riding around Washington and we went to all the sites. And the one place, the one place we hadn't been was the Jefferson Memorial. And so we're riding around trying to get, you remember this? Trying to get to the Jefferson Memorial. And it was it was kind of like that Chevy Chase movie. We kept riding around. There it is. Riding around. There it is. Can't figure out how to get to it, but there it is. Now, I've always prided myself on the fact that I've never been lost. I, I can I can find my way just about anywhere. I'm getting to it. But this was one of those times I, for the life of me, could not figure out how I get from here to a place that I can see. I can't do it. And so I don't remember if it was on the same trip or another trip, but later on, Beth, my wife, who's right over here, she got me this little uh, print of Daniel Boone. And Daniel Boone is sitting there on this rock with his hunting rifle. And his bird dog, he's got his hat pulled off and it's, you know, you can tell he's just resting, you know, but there's this little quote that's ascribed to Daniel Boone and says, I was never lost. I was once bewildered for three days, but I was never lost. <laughs> that is still in a place of honor in my office right now. Now, here's my point. If I don't stop and ask somebody for directions, chances are I might not be able to find where it is I'm wanting to go, right? And there is this voice over here telling me, stop and ask for directions. 
And so finally, you know what we do, guys. We pull over. Okay, well, if it's going to satisfy you and keep you quiet, I can find it, but we'll go ask for directions. And so we go into the gas station attendant. Well, my wife's out here, and she just made me pull over. And can you tell me how to get this place? And and so the guy points out the way. This is how you go. Well, you go down here to this red light. You take a right. You go two blocks. You look for this, and you'll be right there. And so we get back in the car. Now, how ridiculous would it be? after having someone point out directions for me, how ridiculous would it be of me to get back in the car and say, you know what? I'm just going to be led by the Spirit. <laughs> what I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, is to be led by the Spirit is not to just follow your gut. Right. To be led by the Spirit is to walk according to God's instructions. He's already shown us and pointed out the way. In fact, the word Torah it is related to the word that means to point. All right? So again, Paul is saying that those who are who are the sons of God, these are the ones who are who pulled over, <laughs> you know, swallowed their pride, asked for instructions, and are trying to faithfully follow those instructions. You know why? Because he's trying to point us to a place that we've never been. And especially this generation. We're in a spot, ladies and gentlemen, we've never been here before. We don't know the way just yet. Would you agree? Yeah. And there's only one path that's going to take us to where we want to go. And it's already been outlined in this book right here. Now, Paul goes on and says that, you know, and, and, and alludes to, without really saying, that, you know, it's, it's going to be difficult sometimes. Because we are walking in this flesh. We do wake up sometimes. And don't really, you know, have the, whatever it is, to do what God says. Because the carnal mind is enmity with God. It will not subject itself to the Torah of God. But so then, I long, I pine for the day. Where, where this corruptible puts on incorruption and this mortal puts on immortality. The day where it says it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but when we see him, we shall see him as he is. And guess what? We shall be like him. Now, I'm hoping for that day. And you know why? Because I don't have to get up anymore and crucify and battle this stuff called flesh. But has that happened? No. Is it going to happen? Yes. Now, not only are we hoping for that, but Paul writes that the very creation is longing for that as well. The creation somehow knows and somehow understands that this uh, this redemption of the body, this restoration of all things, that has to happen for the creation to be released from the, the bondage of corruption that it is that it is subjected to. Because if you read here, what is it, verse 19? which says, uh, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The creation has been subjected to corruption, and the creation wants to be released from its bondage of corruption, but it has to be when the sons of God are revealed. Now, I don't want to... Uh, get too far off down this other road, but my, the way my mind works, if Paul is talking about the, the creation being subjected to the bondage of corruption, I understand that when the earth and the creation was first spoken into existence by the creator, I can't accept that it was spoken into existence faulty and corruptible, right? Would you agree? So then when did the creation become subject to the bondage of corruption? My opinion. We know that when Adam sinned, the ground was cursed for his sake. But later on in Bereshit or Genesis chapter 6, we read about how the sons of God 
saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And what was the end result? Thank you. It happens every time. Giants is what most people think. But if you look at verse four of Genesis chapter six very carefully, you will see it says that there were giants in the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went into the daughters of men and took wives for them and and then they bore children to them. So my, my point is here. The giants, the Nephilim, were present before and after the sons of God, the Beneha Elohim and the daughters of men came together. So then if the sons of God and the daughters of men coming together produces this race of Nephilim, please explain to me how the Nephilim got there before that happened. Now, here is my point. The subject matter today is not Nephilim. The subject matter today is not who the sons of God are in Genesis 6 or what they are. I have my opinion. All right. But here is something I think we can all agree on. When the sons of God and the daughters of men came together, wickedness so great, so egregious and so extensive spread throughout the world that God determined that he was going to destroy the world. He was going to destroy man and beast, creeping thing, fowls of the air. Remember? And in fact, in verse 11 of Genesis six, it says, and the earth also was corrupt before God. And the Lord God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt, corrupt because man had corrupted his way upon the earth. The point is, the scripture seems to bear out that when the sons of God, who I will suggest to you before they enter into this union, represent what is holy. When the sons of God enter into this relationship with the daughters of men that I will submit to you represents what is common. The end result was corruption. The end result was wickedness so extensive that it affected the very earth. And so the father determines to destroy everything. Now, this hints at the principle of not mingling the holy with the profane. We are told in in Vayikra or Leviticus 19, verse 19, Deuteronomy 22, verse 9, to paraphrase, from the father's point of view, you don't take two different types of seed and mingle them in the same field or in the same vineyard. From his point of view, whether it makes sense to you and I or not. But from his point of view, when you take two different types of seed, two different species of seed and put them in the same field, the end result is corruption and defilement. And in fact, the fruit that is going to be produced from this is considered corrupt. Well, what happens when that corrupt fruit falls to the ground? So I'm going to suggest that maybe that maybe the bondage of corruption that Shaul brings out here, maybe. That goes back all the way to the beginning. Imagine that. It goes all the way back to the beginning when the sons of God mingled with what was common, mingled with the daughters of men, and the end result was corruption. The end result was wickedness. Now, you can, you know, process that out and, you know, and, and you don't have to agree with me. But it seems to me that this is where the trouble started as far as the earth and the creation being bound under this bondage of corruption. So if that is True. If that's possible, then then in the end of days, and I believe we're living in the end of days. Do you? A few of you do. If we're living in the end of days and we are the sons of God, then what have we got to do? If the creation is going to be liberated from its bondage of corruption, keeping in mind that perhaps the creation was subjected to this bondage of corruption because the holy mingled with the profane. Then in the end of days, what do the sons of God living there have to do? 
they have to expunge these common and profane things from their life. They have to learn to walk by the Spirit. And what does that mean? To return to God's Torah and to walk according to His commandments. All right? Now, again, that's that's something for you to chew on. And, and you can you can come to your own determination, but that seems to make sense to me. And that the sons of God in the end are going to have to learn to walk according to God's Torah. Now, does this mean that this is how we're justified? How are we justified before a holy God? Huh? The blood of Messiah. The atonement of Messiah. All right? The Passover lamb. All right. Now, notice one other thing here. Verse 19 again. But the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? All right. And we are expecting something in the future to take place, right? And it hasn't happened just yet, right? And when it happens, it's going to turn this old world on its ear, isn't it? Okay. So we are going to be revealed in the future, aren't we? Yeah. All right. So if we're going to be revealed tomorrow, what does that mean we are today? Hidden. Because something can't be revealed tomorrow if it isn't hidden today. Right? So here's what I want to say. This is going to be the thing that's just going to be the, you know, the, the real focus of our, our, our time together today. You have been hidden. In fact, you were hidden so well that you didn't even know you were hidden. It's true. We have been concealed. And on purpose, I'm not the one who decided that I would be born in Albany, Georgia in May of 1963, be raised in a church of God, grow up Pentecostal, you know, wrapping Christmas presents, hunting Easter eggs and eating pork chops till they were coming out my ears. I'm not the one who decided that. I'm not the one who decided that, you know, for your situation, whatever it may be. Now, I'm one of those that believes in the sovereignty of God. I'm one of those who believes that nothing takes him by surprise. So he was not surprised when I was born in that situation. He wasn't surprised. He wasn't shocked to find me opening Christmas presents one December 25th. And it didn't take him by surprise that the morning I got born again, I probably went home and had bacon. Now, am I condoning those things? No, I'm not. I'm just saying it didn't shock him. It didn't take him by surprise. If we believe in the sovereignty of God. All right. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the same God who found me when I was doing all those things is the same God who has brought me to this point to want to walk away from those things and return to him. Everybody all right with that? All right. Now, we've been hidden and we were hidden on purpose. We have been concealed. And this is something that we can find from the very beginning of Scripture. In fact, let's go. Over to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, on the first day, well, before the first day, actually, what do we see? We, we see the, well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in the next verse, what do we see? We see the earth is encased in water because the spirit of Elohim is hovering or brooding over the face of the deep. Do you, you everybody understand that the world was covered with water? And so we have the spirit of Elohim brooding over the waters like a, a dove, you know, brooding over the waters, hovering over the waters. Something is about to, to transpire here. Now, in the scripture, the seas of the waters are used at times to personify what? Peoples, the nations. 
So in the very beginning, what do we have a picture of? The spirit of Elohim brooding over the nations. And then what happens? It says, let there be light. And there was light. That was day. This is where you get involved, class. Okay. All right. And then he says, let there be a firmament established in the heavens to divide the waters above from the waters below. And it was so. And that was day. And then it says here in verse uh, nine. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed and the fruit trees that yield fruits according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind and the trees that yield fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Now, here's what we have in the very beginning. We see that the earth, the dry land at the very beginning is what? It's hidden. Is it not? Is it con it's concealed, isn't it? And what do the waters often personify? The nations, the peoples. And so on the first day, there's light. The second day, there's an expanse to divide the waters above and the waters below. Then what happens on the third day? He says, gather the seas together into one place. And what what appears? Dry land. And that dry land begins to produce grass, herb yielding seed, trees bearing fruit. And it all happens on the third day. In other words, we understand in the very beginning that it was on the third day that things that had been hidden were revealed. Things that had been concealed were made known. And it happened on the third day. Now, Hosea says in chapter 6, Come and let us return to the Lord. The word shuv there, to return, is from the word from which we get repentance, the shuva. We're going to return to him. And obviously, if we've got to return to him, that we've walked away from him. We have walked according to the flesh. But what are we going to do? We're going to turn to him. We're going to be led by the spirit. We're going to return to him and to his ways. He has stricken, but he will heal us. He is going to bind us up, Hosea says. In fact, he goes on and says, after two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. So what is Hosea prophesied is going to happen on the third day? There's going to be a, well, if I can use a Pentecostal term, a revival. Now, when I was growing up in my, my background, revival meant that some guy in a very nice suit and with great hair, you know, is, is going to come to town. And he's going to walk up in front of the crowd. He's going to have a microphone in this hand. He's going to have a handkerchief in this hand. And he's going to a little up here. And he's going to wipe sweat off of him. And he's going to jump around. We're going to hoop and holler. We're going to have a big time go home. And whoo, we had church. That's what revival meant when I was growing up. And again, I'm not putting that down. That's just where I come from. All right. But we all know or should know that's not what the scriptures mean when it talks about revival. Revival is this. Something that is dead is resurrected, right? Something that is dead is resurrected. Something that has been unconscious is brought back to consciousness. Something that has been hidden is revealed. And Hosea says that it's going to happen after two days, he will revive us. Well, if, if it's after two days, what does that imply? That it's on the third day. And on the third day, he's going to raise us up that we may live in his sight. 
my opinion, the, the birth, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Messiah is the benchmark event in human history. And about how long has it been in terms of years since that occurred? 2,000 years, approximately. Or as we know, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. And so approximately two days have passed. And so we are standing, ladies and gentlemen, at the threshold of the third day. And from the beginning, what do we learn? That What happens on the third day? The seas are going to be spoken to. And that that the seas have kept hidden, have concealed, that that's been hidden is going to be brought to the surface. It's going to come forward and then it's going to begin to produce the grass and the herb yielding seed. And it's going to produce the fruit. Things that have been hidden are going to be revealed. And from the beginning, it happens on the third day. So we shouldn't be surprised then. Considering we are standing at the threshold of the third day, we shouldn't be surprised to all of a sudden start hearing things about Torah, Mohedin, feast days, Shabbat. It's being revealed. We're in that process, ladies and gentlemen, because it's the third day. Now, let me show you another principle, if I can put it that way, in the beginning. In chapter 2. Chapter 2, let's go... Let's go to verse 18, chapter 2, 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him, or some translations may say a help meet or help mate, right? Has the rain put you to sleep already? Okay, a help meet or a help mate. Now, the Hebrew term is ezer negedo, ezer negedo. Ezer means to help. Negedo, actually, if we were going to translate that literally, negedo. Negen means actually opposite. It comes from a word that means to oppose. Literally what the Father is saying is, it's not good for man to be alone. It's not, it, it's not good for man to be alone. A man will find a way to foul it up, okay? Alright? And so it's not good for man to be alone. And so what the Father says is, I'm gonna make him a help opposite. Literally. And this, ladies, you're gonna love this. But again, you're gonna have to escort me to the trailer later on. It literally means that he's going to make someone who is going to help him, but help him by opposing him. In other words, while he's on his way to fouling things up, <laughs> she's going to get in his face and oppose him. And I can tell you, this is how it works at my house. No, I'm serious. And, I, and I'm not saying this because my wife's here. I've said it. Lots of other places where she wasn't there. I wouldn't be here. I would not be here if she hadn't been married to me and had opposed me all those times when I was stepping out of line and going my own way. That's the truth. And gentlemen, if you'll be honest, chances are your wife saw this long before you did. Some of you. Why? It's because women are just spiritually in tune or something. I don't know. All right. But the, anyway, getting back to the point, the help opposite, she helps him by opposing him. That doesn't mean that she, you know, that the man is not supposed to be led around by a ring through his nose. The woman is not supposed to be led around with a chain on her neck either. They're to walk side by side because the woman was taken from man's side. But the way that the father designed it, because he knows men, 
And he knows women, the way he designed women is they help us by opposing us. They come from a different perspective totally. Something, I mean, guys, come on. You know, they think unlike anything we think, right? The things that I think should make her happy are typically not the things that make her happy. But things like taking out the garbage. And she's like, oh. For taking out the garbage? This is all I had to do? All right. So they think totally different. And, you know, they they think the same thing about us. And it's true. We come from a different perspective. He says it's not good for man to be alone. Now, I already said I believe in the sovereignty of God. And you, you agreed with me, right? All right, here's my point. Did God form the man out of the dust of the ground, breathe into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living nephesh, and then God said, oops, I left one part out. No, no. He knew what he was doing all along, right? So then the fact that he says after he has made the man, it's not good for man to be alone. That wasn't an oversight on his part, was it? No, something's being brought out here that you and I need to pay attention to. And so all these animals are presented to Adam and he names them, you know, but there's not found a helpmate comparable. to. And so what does the father do? Well, it says that he calls the man to fall into an unconscious state. And while he is in this unconscious state, what happens? He cuts into his side and from his side, he removes a part of that man. He removes a part of that side, a rib. And what does he do? Does he take that rib and then go get a bunch of clay and gather it from the dust of the earth and form a woman and breathe into her nostrils the breath of life? Well, what does the scripture say? It says that from that rib that he took from the man's side, he took that and made it into a woman. Right. Am I right? Okay. now here's the picture. He makes, creates a body. He creates the original. He breathes into its nostrils. It becomes a living nephesh. But then he causes that body to fall into an unconscious state. And while it's in that state of unconsciousness, what does he do? He cuts into its side and removes a remnant of that body and then takes that remnant and then makes it into another body. Now, this body looked a little different, very similar, but it looks a little different, talks a little differently. Has a totally different perspective. But is the intention for these two to remain distant and separated? No. The very reason he has fashioned this other body is to help this one. And so he presents the woman to the man. And he brings them together. And this is what Adam says. No. He says, he says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And Moses records, and for this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife. And the two shall become unto one flesh, unto one body, if you will. So in the, the picture is this. A body is created. It falls, and that's very literal, into an unconscious state. A remnant is cut out of its side. And from that remnant, another body is made. And these two become one. Now, Adam says, 
bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In Hebrew, the word for bone or bones is atzam. And if you know Hebrew, it's spelled ein zade men, atzam. Now, if, if Brad were here, he could back me up on this because Brad's the authority on this. So I called him and asked him. I said, I'm seeing something here and I want you to tell me if I'm, I'm writing this. The word atzam comes is related to, I should say, the word etz. You know what the word etz means? Tree. Tree. See the relationship. Bone of my bones. Look at, you know, consider your skeletal structure. Now compare it to the tree, how the tree grows. You got the big trunk and then you got all the branches that come out from that. Can you see perhaps how etz gave birth to the word atzam, the word for bones? The word etz is spelled ein sade. Atzam is spelled ein sade mem. So my point is, the word atzam that Adam uses is equivalent, if you will, related to, probably better put, to the word for tree. The word for flesh, basar. Basar. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The Hebrew word is basar, that is translated flesh. But basar, spelled bet, uh, shin, resh, is also the Hebrew word for good news or gospel. So here's my point. This body falls into an unconscious state and God cuts the side of this body and removes a remnant. And then from that remnant, what does he do? He takes and he makes it to be another body that looks different, speaks differently, has a different perspective. The whole reason this other body was made was to help that other It was never intended for these two to remain distant and separated. It was always determined by him from the very beginning that these two should be brought together, that they should be joined together. Because Adam says, the original body says, this bone is of my bones. Or if I can put it this way, this tree came from this tree. The good news, the gospel that she espouses is not different. It came out of this good news that was put in me. It's just that she comes from a totally different perspective and seemingly is opposing what he's saying. But it's not opposing because when the two become one, they will become one body. They will become one flesh. Now, are you tracking with me here? You're reading between the lines? So from the very beginning, what has the Father shown us? That things that have been unconscious... (laughs) Things that have been hidden, things that have been dead, what's going to happen? They're going to be brought back to consciousness. They're going to be resurrected. They're going to be revealed. Chava was revealed. Adam was brought back to consciousness. And typically, when do these things happen in Scripture? Third day. And from the very beginning, what has the Father shown us? That there was this body. And he's the one who calls this body to go into this unconscious state so that he could remove a remnant from this body, but not to start something new, but to fashion a body that was intended to help this body over here. In fact, it was always intended that these two would be unto one flesh. So my opinion is that what we are witnessing, ladies and gentlemen, right now is those things are beginning to happen. The things that have been revealed or hidden, I should say, perhaps from the beginning are now being made known to us. We're, we're beginning to understand some of these things. We're beginning to, to see that we're living in a day that's unlike any other. You and I have been privileged, have been privileged to be born for such a time as this. And with that privilege goes a lot of responsibility.
Stay tuned to Solace Radio.